This week's episode of Pop Culture Double Date. This week, um, as promised, we are back with Harry Potter 3, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, in our ongoing retrospective watch of the Harry Potter series. Um, so far in the series, we have been pretty chipper about Harry Potter. Um, I think we've all kind of enjoyed rewatching the first two films, even though they're not perfect films. I think we both, uh, everyone around the table, would um, quite enjoyed the first two films. Um, so yeah, I'm joined tonight by uh, my crew, Gerald, Anija, Mags. Say hello. Hi. Oh. Hello. Um, yeah, and we're just going to get started talking about Prisoner of Azkaban. This is going to be a full spoilers podcast, so um, I mean... I think I've said this before, these are like really old films by now, so, uh, so um, yeah, but you're warned that we're going to talk about the details of the plot, right? So, yeah, full spoilers podcast. So, yeah, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, um, this is one, this is the one, which, which one is this one, right? Like, I often get confused about the Harry Potter films, and which which are the key points about this one? This is the one where the Dementors get um, introduced, right? Um, they get on the loose and they suck people's souls, it seems. Um, Luma, uh, Remus Lupin gets introduced, the new defense against the dark arts teacher, um, who, spoilers, is turns into a werewolf. Um, he can't control himself, he turns into a werewolf um, in the full moon. Remus Lupin gets introduced. What else happens in the Prisoner of Azkaban? Well, we've got the Prisoner of Azkaban, who is Sirius Black. Sirius Black, um, notorious mass murderer Sirius Black, has escaped from the prison of Azkaban. He's on the loose. Everyone is concerned that he is coming after Harry Potter, and that is one of the key drivers of the story. But, you know, at, at this point, this story is still a school story, so a lot of the story this year is still centered around the school. Although, obviously, there is this plot of Sirius and what he, what he wants with Harry. What are the other big things about this film? This, in my mind, is the one with the time travel. This is the, the one with the time travel, where, like, Hermione gets her hands on the time turner, and she's able to travel back through time so she can take multiple classes. But... Um, the time turner is crucial in the resolution of this story because it allows our heroes to uh, basically um, control their own destiny, I guess. Like, they manifest their own destiny by going back in time and doing a sort of back-to-the-future type of thing, which I really enjoyed. So I think those are the key things that, in my mind, like sort of remind me of what The Prisoner of was about. So I'm going to go around the table now and just quickly get everyone's views on whether they like The Prisoner of Azkaban, what they picked up on their rewatch. Um, was this one of the better Harry Potter films? I'm just going to shoot it out there. Who wants to go first? Anja, Mags, Jerry? Who wants to shoot? Yeah, oh. right. Um, sure, I'll go first. So I remember when I first watched the series, this was probably my, my favourite. And funnily enough, on the rewatch, it's been the one I've enjoyed the least, but still still enjoyed it, of course. Um, okay, first of all, I've got to say, time travel is such a weakness in any movie, but especially 
this one. Um, and it's not just a weakness in the movie because it never makes sense and it feels like such a, you know, such a Hail Mary, um, deus ex machina mach or whatever, to, you know, way of resolving something. Uh, it's never very satisfactory. Um, but it's also annoying in the series because it's never brought back again. And you would think that the ability to travel back in time, if you had that, you'd be whipping that baby out all the time, okay? All the time. So um, the fact that it's never mentioned again is kind of annoying. But I think the reason why she put it in there, and I, I like to hope that um, – JK, you know, really thought about the pros and cons of involving a time travel element. But I think what she wanted to do is she wanted to have this story beat where Harry believes that he's not good enough. Because, you know, at the beginning, we see the Dementors. They come into the train carriage where Harry is sitting with um, his friends and Lupin. And the Dementors have a much bigger impact on Harry than they do on his friends. And from that moment, his kind of co his confidence is really shaken. He kind of thinks, "Am I a coward? Am I weak? Like, why do they have a bigger impact on me?" You know. And he's trying to defend himself. He's trying to learn how to conjure a Patronus, and he's able to do it, but it's just not strong enough, and it's always overcoming him. And so I think the reason there was that time travel element was to have that story loop where Harry believes that his father had come to save him only to realize on a birds on a sort of retrospective view where he looks back at what what actually happened that it wasn't his father that he saved himself and that he had inherited you know the the the, the strengths and the powers and the he'd inherited traits from his dad because his dad was good at conjuring up patronuses and had a really strong one and he, I think it's it's great that he learns not only that he is strong enough, but there's that link for him with his dad because Harry is so sad with, you know, not really having any family of his own um, to love and to feel like an affiliate, you know, affiliated with, like a strong sort of sense of bonding with. So I think that's why it was there. And so I would like to forgive it because I do think that moment where Harry realises, oh, my God, there's no one coming to save me i must have saved myself i must have been strong enough um and then does it is is like a really magical moving kind of moment so i can allow for that <laughs> um, <laughs> the other thing is i really loved um serious okay i just think Sirius is like my second favorite character next to Snape. I wish they both had more <laughs> to do in this movie but i loved all of their scenes um I just love how he played this crazy... First of all, it's kind of confusing why he played, played it so crazy. I mean, every time you see him before he's a good guy, he's so menacing. Like, first he's just grabbing snarling at Harry from across the road, and then they see him in this globe, and he's still growling and snarling at Harry, and I'm like, why, serious? It's probably not the best way to approach your godson to <laughs> on his side. Um, but I just think he's got so much charisma and I um, sort of loved his things. And it is just so sad for Harry that he, like, this movie is one of the darker and sadder sort of turns of you know, the series. And it's so sad for Harry that when he finally makes that connection with someone who, you know, loves him and cares for him and is closely tied to his parents and so could actually teach him about his parents because, you know, he's always longing to understand his roots and feel that connection 
it's then ripped away from him and he doesn't get to have it. He has to stay the sad boy for that whole series. That's the Harry we know and love. Um, but look, I love the scenes. I really love the scenes between Lupin and Sirius. Like, to see those two friends unite, you just kind of felt like they'd known each other forever. And, you know, I just love that scene where they find out they the, the rat is discovered um, even though that was ridiculous, um, you know, and then the whole plot is revealed, you know, the twist is revealed. Um, I just found that really exciting and fun. Um, and, yeah, it was really good. So the Dementors are awesome. You know, they're terrifying. They never cease to be. Like, even after all this time, and we've seen them so many times, they never cease to be really scary. Um, and, yeah. I, I really, um, I really enjoy it. Uh, and yet another movie where Harry and Hermione have tons of chemistry, and Hermione and Ron are just awkward. Ah, <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, Max, before before I go on to you, um, I found it really interesting, Anna, that you said that you disliked. So, okay, like, for me, like, I, I generally like this film as well, but I actually think I came on the opposite, as in, I actually really like the time travel element in this story. And I absolutely agree with you that, like, the time travel element um, is probably overpowered, <laughs> right? But, I mean, and I can understand why she doesn't introduce it, because if you have this time travel element, then someone can just constantly use it non-stop, right? To basically win whatever they want to do, right? But I actually thought the, like, I really enjoyed the time travel element because I, I really enjoyed how it was like this kind of puzzle that was being put together. Because earlier, you know, the time travel element kind of starts when they visit Hagrid's and there's about, the Buckbeak ex execution is about to occur, right? And... Like, there's all this stuff that kind of goes on. You're like, hang on, what's... Like, there's this... All this sort of odd stuff that kind of goes on. And then with the time travel, it kind of all just clicks together. And I really like that. I really love these sort of plots where it's like, oh, yeah, okay. So all of the bits kind of fall together. So I actually really like the time travel element. And I, I enjoy time travel stories where it's like a closed loop. I don't like time travel stories where you have alternate realities created and stuff, right? I think it's way too complicated. I really like the closed loop type of stories because they have to be cleverer in order for the closed loop to work, right? So, yeah, I, I as a conceit, I really liked it. And I think the other thing is that um, I, I think I really love the time, time travel story also because the time travel story, as you pointed out, Anija, is key in my mind to one of the major themes of this film, which I, I think is like about like manifesting your own de destiny, right? That you are in control of your own future, right? Because, you know, and, the, you know, the theme gets explored, sort of, you know, touched on through, you know, they, they have the divination class, right? With Trelawney, where, you know, they're, they're looking into the future and like Trelawney is like, oh, your future is like set and all this type of stuff, right? And, and then, you know, Harry is unclear whether he... Like, in, in all of this as well, there's, there's this sense of, oh, well, like, you know, at the beginning of the film like the um, Harry's uncle and aunt, right? Like there's the scene where Harry's uncle's sister basically says, Harry, you're, you're horrible because, you know, your blood is bad, like your parents were bad, right? And there's this sense of, well, you know, am I really my own person? Like, is, is my path already set? Because, you know, like 
you know, my this thing happened to my parents sort of thing, right? So th- there is this sense of, like, Harry being unable to fight against his own destiny. But then, like, with the, the way the time travel story kind of works, like, the time travel story is basically about, a tr- you know, someone who's very young learning that no one is going to save you except yourself, right? You have agency in your own life. You are, Like, your life is not determined by your parents. So, you know, your parents affect you, obviously, right? Like, your education, like, kind of, the, some, some of their traits get passed on to you, but you are not defined by those, by those, like, by those situations, by, by those traits, right? You're not de- defined, um, you, you're not, like, you kind of set your own destiny, right? And, I love how the time travel plot sort of plays into that because at the end of the day, Harry saves himself, right? He's not a victim, right? He, he doesn't play the victim. He takes agency and he saves himself. I think it's a really powerful message um, for like a kid's film, right? Because I would still classify this um, as a kid's film. So we're moving from kid's films to sort of the young adult sort of dash teen, maybe teen. Yeah, we're moving from the kid's story to the teen story sort of thing, right? But, you know, I, I think it's, it's a really powerful message and I, I really enjoy it. I, I really enjoy how the time travel story sort of like fits into that. So sorry about that diversion. I know it was a bit of a long diversion, but I will go on to mags. But anyway, it was it was just interesting because for me, I had a different sort of reaction to the time travel story. And I actually really like this film because of the time travel story. Well, didn't we both kind of like it for the... Like, no, absolutely. Agreed. Yeah. It was well worth it. Yeah. I just in general don't like time travel because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mag, sorry. Sorry I interrupted you. No, not at all. Um, so for me, I found um, this movie very enjoyable. I thought that the plot overall was um, tightly conceived. Um, and once again, like the other movies, it seeds some new ideas and plot devices that you know will have a role somewhere down the track, which is always really exciting. Some of my highlights in, in terms of the world building were the introduction of the Marauder's Map. I love the lines that you're meant to say to activate it and turn it off. Um, what is it? I, I solemnly swear that I'm up to no good and mischief managed. It says so much about the character of James Potter and his friends. I really love that. Hogsmeade, we get a sense of the village for the first time. That's just near um, uh, Hogwarts. Um, we meet um, James and Lily Potter's closest friends, Lupin, Sirius, Peter Pettigrew, um, and get to understand as well. It implies the relationship that they had with Snape, which I think is quite interesting. They made a lot more of the moving paintings, which I think they hadn't done um, in the other uh, first two movies, but did a lot more in this movie, which I really enjoyed. And a new um, singing singing lady. Uh, Fat lady. Fat lady. Um, in the oh painting, my, yeah. In the painting. What's her name again? I, I can't um, remember. Anyway. Jennifer Saunders or... Anyway, I've got that wrong. Um, I really <laughs> like that. Lady? Is yeah, it's a new fat lady. <sighs> wow. Yeah. New oh, fat lady. And new Dumbledore. Dumbledore. And new Dumbledore. Well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, funnier, more lively, both of them. <laughs> um, uh, Dawn French. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Dawn French. Very funny. Yeah. Um, 
all the new creatures and monsters they introduce, like Buckbeat, the Bogart, the Werewolf, um, which I really liked. We got to know a bit more about why the Whomping Willow is where it is, and that's a very vindictive tree. Um, and then the, there was the blowing up of the ant, which really kicked off the whole story, which once again was quite horrible and ridiculous and smacked of Roald Dahl. And incidentally, the actress who played the aunt also played Trunchbull in the Matilda film from the 90s, which I thought was um, um, quite interesting. I'd forgotten about that movie until I saw her. Yeah. Um, so... It's interesting, because you were talking there, Mags, about the Whomping Willow, and I, I think you're, you are right that, like... The way these films kind of slowly build on this world is actually quite... It feels actually pretty deliberate and um, well-calculated, right? Like, in a good way, right? Not not calculated in a bad way, but, like, everything feels like... Because you think about it, the Whomping Willow was introduced in the last film, right? Because they crashed a tree into the, the, the... They crashed a car into the tree, right? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah and... Yeah. You, and you have no context of that. You're just like, oh, there's this tree that beats people up, right? And then in this film, it's kind of like, oh, actually, so this world... Let, let's go into the next level of detail around this, right? So, yeah, this tree that, you know, beat up the car, why is it there? The tree is there to keep people away from this house that it's connected to, right? Like, there's a reason why it's such an angry tree. It's because they don't want people getting to the house. And it's kind of like... Well, why is this house there? Oh, because it's it's haunted. So that's why they don't want people to enter the house. But then, like in in line with this theme of kind of like you know you kind of there's no like there's always this theme of this film which is like everything is explicable, right? There's no sort of I mean it sounds dumb, right? But there's no magic in that. Like there's always like intent be, behind things, right? It's kind of like well, why is this freaking shack haunted? Shrieking Shack is haunted because years and years ago, like, they shoved Remus Lupin in there, right, when he turned into a wolf. And that's why people thought it was haunted. So it's kind of like, I, yeah, I, I really like this idea of, oh, actually, yeah, like, we'll just get into that next level of detail. And as that next level of detail sort of blossoms, it all kind of, like, just fits into place, right? It's, it's really well-done world-building because everything kind of just slots so nicely into place mm, it's very satisfying yeah yeah and like the freaking track which we know will reappear at some point in time in the future as well mm. Mm. absolutely yeah. yeah um i was gonna say um as well i really enjoyed you know the introduction of um the friends of james and lily potter sirius lupin and peter pettigrew grew sorry yeah. um and how you kind of see the depth of the relationship between Sirius and Lupin and this idea of you um, you stay by your friends through thick and, th and thin when Lupin starts to change and Sirius is trying to appeal to his humanity to stay with him and he doesn't leave him. Even though he fights him, he doesn't leave him, which I think um, when you're looking at, again, you know, the, the deepening friendship between Harry, Ron and Hermione and how that's going to be tested in the future and, and seeing that mirrored in, you know, in the, um, the friendships of his um, parents' friends, you kind of see what that future could look like. Yeah. So I, re I really liked that. 
Yeah, but um, it also portends to how complicated those relationships can get, right? With mm-hmm. someone like Peter Pettigrew, right? So you know, it, it is a it's a teen novel because no longer are these friendships seen as these very simple sorts of relationships, right? It's like, yeah, you have these lifelong friendships that you build, but then you also have these schisms that occur as, like, is kind of witnessed as uh, the example is, like, how Peter is clearly one of their closest friends when they were at school, but betrays them horribly, right, at the Mm -hmm. end. So it's kind of like Mm -hmm. these relationships are actually quite complicated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. And finally, I just wanted to make one point. I really loved how they um, they made the characters, all the all the teen characters, actually become teenagers in this in this film. Like the the slightly awkward hair, the pimples, the shirts that are untucked and the sleeves are rolled up, and the shirts are, they're not like that lovely um, white white snowy white anymore. They're slightly grey and like wrinkled and a bit disgusting <laughs> I thought that was really good I thought that was really good that's a great observation <laughs> yeah that's true that's true though Max like it, it the way they've kind of set up this school world it feels like it feels like high school right like as in you know it feels like high school because you go into year seven and everybody is so prim and proper in year seven right because they don't know any better and by the time that they're in year eight, year eight or nine or whatever it is like shirts are untucked, you know, and they're starting to become teenagers as well, right? Like, like I was saying to Max, like there, there's a scene quite a, quite close to the beginning of the film when they show all of the boys in the dorm, and they've just come back to school, and they're kind of like mm, eating yeah. jelly beans, or I don't know what it is that they're they're like sharing snacks or something and like having fun, right? And everyone's shirt is tucked up. Everyone's a bit messy. It's like, there's a really organic, natural feel about that scene. It's like, yeah, okay, these guys get it. They get what kind of like that sort of high school experience is like. Yeah. Um, Just quickly, Jaron, you know how you said Peter Pettigrew was one of their closest friends? Like, was he? Like, because I had this thought during the movie, because... Like, you look, we take one look at Peter Pettigrew, and he's like, probably wasn't part of the cool group. (laughs) But he's on the Marauder's map, because the Marauder's map lists him. It's like, um... I see. I see, because, like, they talk about how Peter Pettigrew just followed them around, so I thought he might just be, like, this tag-along that nobody really... Yeah. uh, But then I guess they did trust him with the secret. Even though the reason they trusted him with the secret of um, Harry's parents' location was because um, it would be too obvious if it was if Sirius was the secret keeper. That's uh, too far along mm. into the other movies, but mm. yeah, okay, interesting. All right, because he is because the Marauders map has four names, right? It's like who's it? Patfoot, Prongs, pa- Wormtail, and I I can never remember the Mooney. Mooney. Mooney is um Lupin. They don't reveal it here, but Mooney is Lupin because he turns into a wolf when the moon comes out, right? Padfoot is obviously serious. Wormtail is um, Peter Pettigrew, and I have to imagine that Harry's dad is Prongs. Yeah. Mm. I mean, to be fair, Peter Pettigrew, when you see him manifest the first time, he has been a rat for 12 years, so <laughs> he's going to look a bit disheveled. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that actually is the truth. That guy has been a rat for 12 years. That's, that's a pretty... <laughs> okay. Um, Jerry, what were your thoughts? I think this is your favourite, right? Yeah, this is well. Certainly, certainly, the first time I watched I watched these films, this was my favorite. Um, and even even now, I've got to say the the decision to hand the reins for this movie to Alfonso Cuarón was inspired. Um, I mean, it's so strange to think that a director of his prestige and his skill was called in to make one of these movies, which is not to disparage any of the other directors. I mean, Christopher Columbus is. Uh, in the first two films, uh, did a very very solid job, and David Yates for the last three or four um, did an impeccable job landing the plane that was this ginormous uh, franchise. But to have Quaron called in to do this one, and this movie feels like a bit, bit of a pivot point, not just because um, you know some of the darker elements of the world get introduced, but there is also along with that a bit of a, a bit of a tonal shift because. Um, there is a darker element to um, the series from here on in um, because in the next movie, spoiler alert, um, someone who's very close to uh, the fantastic trio in the form of Cedric Diggory dies um, and uh, and that leads on to increasing um, an increasing body count uh, in the in the series. So this this movie feels like as I say, a bit of a pivot point in the in the trajectory of the franchise, um, and Quaron just creates so many indelible images. There's a wonderful shot of um, it's a close-up shot of some flowers outside Hogwarts, and these Dementors sort of drift past, and mm. the flowers all wither, freeze over, and die. Um, every shot involving the clock tower at Hogwarts is um, unforgettable. I think the way the the camera moves through the glass. So there's one where the where the camera moves into the clock tower from outside through the glass when Harry's standing there observing the world outside. And then near the end, there's a reverse shot <coughs> where the camera moves out of the clock tower through the glass into the courtyard of Hogwarts. Um, and, of course, that sort of links to the, um, uh, the time-travelling um, uh, element of the climax of the story. So there are so many... Um, indelible images in this. The, the movie has a very distinct colour palette, one which probably um, continues for the rest of the franchise as well. The, the movie, the colours are uh, significantly less saturated. They're almost monochromatic in certain scenes, like when um, when Lupin teaches Harry the Patronus charm um, in the in the classroom where the uh, just no in the in the room just off the classroom where the defence against the dark arts classes are taught. Um, there's, it's almost, um, it's almost a, um, completely yellow and black, um, scene. So I think the, the visual storytelling is taken up a notch in this movie. And, and as, as everyone else has noted, there is, um, a real, um, poignancy about the fact that Harry, having decided to liberate himself from the Dursleys, uh, comes across this one or this handful of surviving links to his to his parents, but by the end of the movie, he's lost them as well. He's lost uh, Lupin has has got to go. Uh, Sirius has got to go back on the run. Uh, Pettigrew turns out is a baddie. 
and um, throughout the movie, he's he's also isolated because he doesn't have the he doesn't have the pass mm. um, signed by the Dursleys to allow him to go on um, to go to Hogsmeade. So he's he's a he's a sort of lonelier figure than he was at the start of the film, um, and that too uh, sort of sets up the rest of the franchise nicely because as the as these films continue the the weight of being kind of the chosen one um is something that settles more heavily upon his shoulders uh with each installment in the franchise until he finds it um almost oppressive to be um to to have to be the the one who leads the fight against Voldemort so in in ways big and small uh this third installment in the franchise it seems to me is um, perhaps the most important one. Um, it sets up so much of the visual storytelling to come. It sets up so much of the character development to come, and so much of the tone of the of the succeeding movies. So, um, in in that respect, it's it's not just enjoyable. I think it's really sort of um, it lays the groundwork for so much uh, that that follows it, uh, and uh, and <coughs> with Quaron at the helm you really are in the hands of a master filmmaker so yeah i've always i've always really enjoyed this one mm. yeah 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 look 100 uh, percent agreed like i i think i think this point that you make jerry that there feels like uh sort of a tonal ink so a tonal shift right like i i agree with that um i w- i would say that like i think on the rewatch one of the things that i have noticed is like with each successive film they do ratchet it up right like the maturity of these films is I I don't feel like it ever sort of does a massive step change but they do these small incremental changes every film and then by the end of this entire series like those incremental changes have basically turned them into fully adult films like in my mind this Prisoner of Azkaban is the shift from what the last two, which were kid stories, at like, you know, Philosopher's Stone was a child story, and the Chamber of Secrets was also a child story, but a little bit more mature. And then here, Prisoner of Azkaban, in my mind, is like, clearly, like, you've shifted into the teen category, right? And then over the next two, like, Azkaban and um, Goblet of Fire, in my mind, are clearly sort of teen style films where there is still that school element and then the moment you shift into like Order of the Phoenix you kind of move from teen into sort of young adult right like and then like and then you have like these two young adult stories and then Deathly Hallows just becomes a fully adult story essentially in the same way it kind of like mirrors their growth as individuals as well I think that's actually one of the genius things about these films and actually the books because they are actually able to tell this story that um, coincides with the growth of the characters um, so well. Um, yeah, really good pickups there, Jerry. I, I I didn't even like some of the cinematography stuff. I I didn't even. I mean, I subconsciously, I guess, would have appreciated it, but I didn't consciously appreciate it. So, yeah, absolutely, really, really interesting pickups, um, especially in terms of like that sort of the clock tower thing, right? So, um, yeah, like I, I definitely felt like that sort of tonal shift for me kind of occurred in the very first scene where you have um, what's it, uh, the Dursleys' aunt, like um, 
you know, Harry's uncle's sister, right? And if you really think about what happens there, it's actually pretty horrific, right? Like, she turns into a blimp and, like, floats away. And it's kind of like this... And Harry is, like... It's kind of like, not only is he genuinely angry, like, one of the first times he's kind of genuinely been angry here, but, like... At, at the same time, it's kind of like what instigates it is actually a lot darker than what was previously put on paper, right? Like, as in, prior, prior to this to, like, the aunt, you kind of had this allusion to mudbloods and that sort of thing, like, to that prejudice through Malfoy. But then the aunt, the way she talks about it is so, like, so vindictive, right? Like, it's like she says the words you know, it's bad blood or something like that. And there's something, like, incredibly sort of, like, it's like the next level of, um, I guess, seriousness and, like, prejudice, I guess. It's, I, I don't know, just the way she puts it is, like, yeah. makes it feel more mature more mature in some ways. Yeah, she is horrible. Uh, but I do think that, like, it continues the trend of when Harry is in the human world, it's like we're in a Roald Dahl story. Yeah. Every time, every time he's in the human world, and then once he's in the magical world, it's a completely different. Yeah, world. exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, the tone, the tone is different. That, but then, I guess one of the things that I've noticed is that the both the human world, that sort of Roald Dahl story, and that sort of magical Hogwarts story, the way it kind of ratchets up in maturity, like that gradual ratchet up, like. Rewatching these films, I've really noticed that both of these things kind of like that sort of trajectory of both of both of those aspects, right? Um, I, I think the other thing for me watching this film was that, um, like, I don't know about everyone else, and I'd love to get everyone's views on this, but I, I definitely felt that this was the first film in which all these kid actors kind of leveled up, right? Like, um, I felt the acting was much better in this film. Like, they, they they felt like it was kind of the beginnings, or really, these were the these were the actors that are going to... The way they act now is kind of the way they're going to act for the rest of the series, right? Like, um, yeah, anyway, that that's, that's kind of like how, how I felt about it anyway. I, I definitely felt like they, they were more mature as actors as well. Like, I, I don't know how much time there was between Chamber of Secrets and this film, but it definitely... There was definitely this step up here in terms of um, in terms of the maturity of the actors. Um, mm. Yeah. What else? What else did I really like about this film? Um, I, I think a lot of it has kind of been been said already. Like I, I must say, I, I remember when I when I. Malfoy, right? Sorry. Yeah. On your previous point, except for Malfoy. Yeah, Felton. Felton still kind of can't act. Hmm. He's a bit. He's a bit too much. Yeah. I. I think. I, I don't know if that's Felton or just like Malfoy. At this point, is still played for like a cheap bully, right? He doesn't really have that much of a character at this point. Hmm. True, and he's also he's also far less mature than the main trio, because um, he's just a dick. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, like, truth be told, uh, Emma Watson finally demonstrates some capacity to act in, in this one, um, <laughs> and uh, and 
and you know sort of and you know I think I think the thing is Grint will never stop being required just to look confused or scared like that will be his entire that, that's his function in these movies and so you know he will never he'll never show more more range until perhaps um, the second half of Deathly Hallows when he becomes kind of angry and paranoid about Harry and Hermione yeah um, and I think I think Radcliffe has actually been pretty consistent throughout the three of them so far I think he's probably been been the standout of the three of all the child actors not simply because his character is 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 he's the main character and it's the character with the most sort of complexity and who has to show the biggest uh, changes and has to sort of wear um a lot of the emotional weight of these movies at the you know he has to be both both our introduction to this world of wonder and also to be the sad little boy at the same time so he's always been i think really Quite excellent in all three movies. Really? Yeah, excellent. yeah. I think in, in a way that in a way that sort of it's easy to overlook because he's he, he's so he's so associated with the role now, and it's inseparable. He's kind of inseparable from the role. But if you take a step back and just watch the performance, I think you'll see that from the get go, Radcliffe has really inhabited the role much more comfortably than almost any of the other child actors. Yeah, I think I think you're probably right there, Jerry. Like on reflection, now that we've kind of rewatched *Philosopher's Stone* and *Chamber of Secrets*, uh, I like look. I I definitely feel like *Philosopher's Stone* and *Chamber of Secrets*. The acting was definitely not as good across the board, right? But on balance, I think Radcliffe has had the most consistent performance. Right, definitely more consistent than Emma Watson, and probably Rupert Grint as well. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not seeing the excellence of Radcliffe, but okay. I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's putting. Maybe that is putting it a bit hard, but he's certainly the most consistent because um, because I think you know, sort of Watson starts out really rough. Um, Grint doesn't have much to do, and he continues not to have much to do. Felton is still like a bit of a punk, um, and so Radcliffe is the one who has who has to do the most emotionally in these movie in these performances. Um, and I think he flops at it, to be honest. <laughs> really? Oh, interesting, interesting. But I guess not badly enough that it detracts no. from your love of the films. No, absolutely yeah. not. So let me ask you a question: Did you like the new Dumbledore? So this is interesting because the new Dumbledore is not as likable. He, he's not as jolly. He seems a bit more cunning, a bit more calculated. So I actually think the new Dumbledore is closer, is more, um, is more, is closer to the character of Dumbledore in the books, where he is quite secretive and he is very calculating. Um, whereas the initial Dumbledore was more of that friendly, like Santa Claus type figure, you know, just that sort of. A ditzy but loving kind of there in the there in the background saying random things <laughs> kind of figure that was easy to like whereas this one like I find it hard to trust him but then I think that is much closer to the character of Dumbledore that's sketched out in the book so in that sense he probably is much better I, I, I have to say I much prefer the Michael Michael Gambon right is that right? That's yeah. A, that's yeah. A, yeah, yeah. 
I much prefer the Michael Gambon Dumbledore. I, I feel like there's more life, right? Like, I, I think in the first two films, Dumbledore, I think he's meant to be played to be enigmatic, but on the rewatch, as we've talked about, like, I, I was just baffled at, like... It felt like he was incompetent in some, like, for a lot of the first two films, right? I was like, what is this guy doing? Like, shouldn't he be getting more involved? Um, and then even when it's kind of implied that involved, the way it's acted is so enigmatic and kind of just like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. While, like, the way Gambon plays Dumbledore, you're right, it's more calculated, but I think it's necessary because it's like, there are big things going on, right? And if Dumbledore is the headmaster, he needs to kind of have some sort of con- control or, like, have some sort of, like, at least assurance to himself that things are going to turn out properly. And it, it kind of feels like in this film that Dumbledore is like, yeah, I've got things. It's, things are under control, right? It's okay. Like, I'm, I can be so kind of relatively laid back and jokey because... I know that things are going to turn out okay because I've kind of put the pieces in place, right? You feel like... It feels like a safer pair of hands, right, as a mm. headmaster. I, mm. I don't know if, if that's that's Mags, your impression. He's a wilier pair of hands. that makes sense? Mm. Yeah. No one's safe around Dumbledore or Hogwarts. <laughs> 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 Yeah, he's cunning. He's cunning. And that's why he's such a good foil for Voldemort. Yes. Yeah, the thing the thing about Gambon is I've always found his, his accent distracting because <laughs> he, is he Irish or is he British? Or is he English? Like um <laughs> and it, his, his his accent kind of violently veers between the two, even in the same sentence. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> Choose a side. <laughs> yeah, so like whereas Richard Harris was very plainly English. Um to, to to watch, I mean, Gambon's Gambon's a great actor. Don't get me wrong, and he's been terrific in a, in a bunch of stuff. And the thing about Gambon is he's got this. There's a slight there's a slight menace about his screen presence. Yeah. Um, and at the risk of mentioning another some other movie, he's really threatening. Spoiler he's really alert. threatening as a tobacco CEO in this movie called The Insider. Mm. And and there's a slight hint of sort of just uneasy menace about about his rendering of Dumbledore. This is not a Dumbledore who is completely 100% benign. Mm. And it's so it's kind of fitting as we as we learn ultimately about what his plan is that he's not that he there is that there is a bit of menace in the in the Gambon persona. Mm. Menace or just you can't trust him. He's got his own agenda. No, I think it, it, I think there's a, there's a, there's partly that, but I think his actual physical presence is, is slightly menacing as well. Because, like, Gambon has that really heavy, square jaw, and he's kind of a lot stockier than, than Richard Harris. Um, and Do you really see that, though? Because, like... And he's like he's, there's something about it. His eyes are, his eyes are more alive than Richard Harris's were. And so, like, yeah, I agree about the eyes, yeah. You can see there's so much more happening behind yes. those eyes than there were when... Which is not to say that Harris is a bad actor. He's a very fine actor. Harris is glazed over. Yeah. Yeah. Was, yeah. There, <laughs> there's, there's, you can actually kind of get a sense of something, like some scheming going on behind Gambon's but, eyes. But isn't that preferable? If you think about the things yeah. that were going on in this school, 
right? Do you want the guy who's just like yeah. sitting there oblivious to everything that's going on? Or do you want the guy who's like, okay, I know this is going on and it's kind of not perfect, but I'm okay with it because like I've got my sort of rods in the fire here, right? Like I've got things playing out. Right, like you want the latter guy, right? Surely, no, no. And, and that's what that's what Gambon brings. And I think, I think so. You know, it, it, you know the circumstances in which he was enlisted to play the role. Um, unfortunate, of course, with Richard Harris dying between the Chamber of Secrets and, and this movie. But ultimately, you know, weird, weird, weird morphing accent, notwithstanding, um, the fact that it, the fact that he brings all these other dimensions to the role of Dumbledore. Um, I think benefits the series greatly, particularly as we particularly as mm. we get into the the later the, the later instalments, mm. as we see how much of a puppet master he has been, how he's enlisted Snape to play this really really long game. Mm. Um, you really do need to get this sense of Dumbledore being um, a character with a plan rather than just this sort of um, you know jolly devourer of candy. Fuddy daddy. Yeah. 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 Yeah, because, like, when you – I mean, spoiler alert, we're talking about the future books. When you think about what he requires of the kids and um, the fact that he's willing to he's willing to sacrifice people mm. um, and he probably had multiple irons in the fire, I think you, you get that sense of that Dumbledore in this version of him. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and he's placed an enormous burden on Harry without ever taking Harry into his confidence and letting him know what exactly was being asked of him. Mm. Yes, and if you think about it, like if you think about the events of the Philosopher's Stone and really the Chamber, like both of those events, right? Both of the prior two films, he is asking so much of these kids, right? But then in the way he's played in those films, he as as you guys have said, he feels like Santa Claus, right? So it's like what like there's this weird disconnect yeah. there where it's like harry. like he grooms harry like he yeah. makes harry believe that he is like a father figure to him he very consciously does things to make harry feel that way while all the while knowing that harry is probably going to go to his death and that's part of the plan yeah, yeah. he's using yeah. harry he's yeah. using yeah. harry basically and that is medicine. he's using harry as a chess piece yeah and and you know, let's not forget that as much, for, for much of the f- series, we, we think Snape dislikes Harry because Snape disliked James. But but the thing is, Snape is, but in, in the flashbacks at the, in the very final movie, kind of appalled by what Dumbledore's doing. By what Dumbledore is Snape asking him has to do. More compassion for Harry as a person and a boy and a child yeah. um, than Dumbledore has, who sees him as a chess piece. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's what I like, as you guys have said, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah I, okay. I, I think I like this Dumbledore because he feels more like the general, right? As in, like, mm, he's someone yeah. who is like for the in order to achieve the outcome that is necessary for peace in the Wizarding World, he's willing to move these pieces around, right? And he is actually in control. I right. think it speaks to JK's talent that the person that everyone looks up to in this franchise, <coughs> Dumbledore, yeah. is actually like morally compromised. He's dubious, you know? Yeah. He's not some perfect figure. 
No, um, yeah. We think he is, and then we learn that he's not. And I actually think that speaks to, you know, her imagination and creativity and talent. Yeah, for sure, right? Dumbledore is not like the savior. He's absolutely not, right? Like he's he's compromised. But yeah, so and and I think in the later films, like definitely in the Deathly Hallows, right? This idea, you know, like they start printing the bad press about him and that, and it's yeah. like, yeah, this guy, like you know, to a very limited child's view. It may be that he's a hero in your eyes, but objectively, he's done some really sort of dubious grey things, right? Mm. I mean, his intentions, I think, in the end, like in terms of the outcome that he's seeking is benevolent, but he definitely doesn't even have his hands clean, right? So, yeah, I, I think, yeah... Look, I mean, I know it was circumstance, but I, I personally think that Michael Gambon's playing of Dumbledore really alludes to this sort of growing character. Like, is it's like it has it's seeding that sort of morally grey Dumbledore, um, which we eventually see. Yeah, um, uh, and look, um, it, it, one of the strangest things about the character of Dumbledore, of course, is that he, he's he's this school headmaster who's like basically running the world and he's kind of doing the minister's <laughs> job. It's like yeah. it's, it's like yeah. your, your school principal <laughs> like the Prime Minister. Yeah, was was conducting the war on terror over the last <laughs> week. Yeah, that's true. Like he's just a school principal, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, like, why is he? Why is he doing all this stuff by way of extracurricular activities? It's, 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 it's one of those weird things. Like, every time we re- we rewatch these movies, I always sit, I always turn to Anna at some point and ask it, and so ask her to explain to me like the political structure of the of the of the world uh, in which we live. Like, is the Ministry for Magic part of the sort of British state? Yes, or is it... it is. It is. Um, but but most only the Prime Minister knows about it. But. Um, you know what he, he asked me a really cool question during the first one, first one, which is that like when do when do the kids go to magic school at Hogwarts? Is it during the school holidays? And I'm like, no, that's their school. And Gerald goes, well, then when do they learn like English and maths? And like... <laughs> that's a great question. They have no standard <laughs> teachers. <there. laughs> and they don't yeah, get a pen I'm... license. They get a quill license. Yeah. You know? So like, so surely like, how is how is Hermione going to pass her A levels, right? Well, I mean, she doesn't because she only passes her. It's like whether you do the HSC or the International Baccalaureate, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, it does raise some interesting questions for the people who straddle both worlds. So, if you live in, if you're the Weasleys, right, and you only live in the Wizarding World, then fine, like your education is fine. But if you live in both worlds, how do you get away with not learning maths? I know. <laughs> like. You just bewitch everybody. Yeah. But look, I, I think it's actually one of the... I think the reality is that... And I, I think all of us around the table have accepted this and we've talked about it. Um, like, in a lot of these fictional worlds, if you really think down to it and you really think about the nitty-gritty, like, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't really quite make sense, right? I think and- the much as you would think in such a massive story, right? <laughs> well, yeah, well... I guess my point is that enough stuff makes sense here that you're yeah. over to willing to overlook some of the like sort of you know like if you really like drill deep 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 right like you're re- willing to overlook those inconsistencies right these films are good enough and the world is well realized enough and the pieces fit together 
well enough at a high level that you don't look at the perceived inconsistencies and think to yourself, oh my God, this film just completely breaks apart, right? While I think if it was much more poorly written, right? Like if they were worse films, then we would be looking at all of these inconsistencies and going, oh my God, like this Wizarding World just completely doesn't make sense. Like how does this work at all, right? It really does come down to the fact that, you know, the films that we have panned, like The Predator, like the reason we panned them and we go into that level of detail about how nothing makes sense in those films is because they're actually bad films. And because they're bad films, you focus on those inconsistencies. Here, it's like, these are good films. And as a result, even if there are mild inconsistencies, you're kind of willing to sort of overlook them a little bit. Yeah. Anyway. Um, Okay, is there anything else we would like to talk about? terms of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Oh, there was one one thing. Um, Anaja, you mentioned that you really like the relationship with Sirius. I was saying to Mags before this, do you think Harry gets to spend... Do you think that's earned? Like, because in this film, like, let's put aside the books, right? In the film, he spends like five seconds with Sirius, right? And then all of a sudden, he's like... They're going to live together. And... Does that yeah. feel odd to you? Okay, you know when... This is how I justify, right? You know in those shows like The Bachelor or that movie Speed? Um, it's the same <laughs> Come again? Did you just like mention The Bachelor and Speed in the I same do, sentence? I do. I do. It's the same principle where high adrenaline activities can create what seems to be an intense bond between people. This bond may fall apart over time as you actually get to know each other, but they can create what seems to be extremely strong feelings. So I think, you know, they've been through a very exciting sort of climax together, um, and there's all the – there's what they – you know what it is? It's they – they, it's what they see in each other. So as if you read the books and in the other movies, Sirius gets criticised for acting as though Harry is James. And instead of seeing Harry, seeing James and not being responsible because he's acting as though he's got his old friend back. You know, and when Harry looks at Sirius, he, you know, at, um, yeah, at Sirius, he's obviously seeing that everything that he's lost. So I think it's not a real bond between two people who really know each other, but it's these two people finally thinking they found what they've lost and what is going to make them whole again, plus all the adrenaline and the action and the excitement that, you know, goes around that, that is creating that strong relationship. So, you know, I think that would be the justification. Hmm. That's very well put, Anadra. It's very well put. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that it doesn't really come out in the movie, you know? Yeah, yeah. Look, look, I, I get what you're saying, though. I, I do understand what you're saying. And look, to be honest, like, it, it was a pretty minor nitpick because I do kind of, like, I, I do actually feel like their relationship is quite heartwarming, right? Like, um, yeah, and I, I absolutely get what you said. It, it does absolutely make sense. Um, yeah. Okay. Is there anything else we want to chat about in terms of Prisoner of Azkaban? Jory, Mags? No. Hmm. Okay. So, I think we all pretty much enjoyed it, right? Like, this is a pretty 
solid film, another pretty solid film in the Harry Potter series. And uh, next time we will move on to the next one, the one with Arpats, a young Arpats. Um, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Um, this this one, the Goblet of Fire, was probably my favorite one. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm yeah. excited to. Gerald, what? Why? Why are you pulling face? Arpats. <laughs> <laughs> Am I? <laughs> well, he dies, Jerry. So, <laughs> sorry, spoiler, yeah, that, massive that, spoiler. That is that is that is that is one good thing about that movie, and also we get to see uh, Ray turn up as uh, as the big V. Yeah, first time, right? Because up to this point, he's kind of been amorphous. Yeah. So. Okay, thank you very much, everyone, for joining me tonight, and um, we'll be back soon to talk about Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Okay, thanks, everyone. Say good night. Bye. Bye.